look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a conversation about women in the locker room and women covering the National Football League. I'll be joined by Judy Batista of NFL.com, formerly of the New York Times, and Jenny Varentis of our staff at the MMQB. Some enlightening discussion uh, with both of those fine reporters. Then we're going to discuss with Jonathan Jones of the MMQB a change in ownership in Carolina, a franchise that Jonathan uh, has long been familiar with, formerly covered, uh, the Carolina Panthers and their new owner, David Tepper, who has bought the franchise for $2.2 billion and agreed to keep the franchise uh, in the Carolinas, which was something that I think turned out to be very important to Jerry Richardson, uh, the former owner. But before we start, there was an earthquake in sports this week, and that earthquake centered around the Supreme Court basically paving the way for states to run sports gambling if they so choose uh, starting with the state of New Jersey, uh, which brought this lawsuit before the Supreme Court and has been battling uh, major professional sports leagues for a decade to try to get legalized sports gambling in the state of New Jersey. Uh, reports this week are that uh, this uh, could begin, this sports gambling could begin as soon as two weeks from now which means that by the end of May, you may be able to place a legal bet on a baseball game, a basketball game in the NBA Finals, a Stanley Cup Finals game in hockey, and this fall, obviously, the National Football League, which everyone views as a major cash cow. Uh, in the state of New Jersey, you may be able to place a bet as soon as two weeks from now. So of all of the the things about this particular topic that interests me the most, uh, what, what, what I believe is going to be one of the biggest parts of this story is the execution, is the details, is the nitty-gritty of this story because, and I was, I, I've been thinking about this ever since this news came down, part of me fears for the American population which uh, is is going to be, uh, there's going to be stories. You're going to see Gamblers Anonymous chapters crop up, and you're going to see people losing their life's fortunes uh, in, in this. And I'm not saying it's going to be overwhelming, but that was one of my first thoughts. And then as I was reading, I read the New York Daily News on Tuesday, 
of this week when they were covering this. And there was a story by Christian Red that I thought was really prescient and really, really very smart. And so I, I'm just going to read you something that Faye Vincent, uh, the former uh, Major League Baseball commissioner, uh, said. When many of you may remember that Faye Vincent was the commissioner when Pete Rose uh, was found to uh, have gambled on baseball in 1989 and at the time uh, was banned from baseball for life. And so Faye Vincent said a couple of things in this story that I think are really important that I want to bring to you. First thing, quote, the American public has decided over and over again that it really wants to bet on whether the sun is going to come up tomorrow. What this decision does is put sports in a position where it has to confront that reality. But there are three big problems. How do you protect the integrity of these games? Who's going to decide the rules? And what will the rules be? He went on to say, Faye Vincent, is there going to be a commissioner of gambling? Can players bet? Can you bet on your own team? Can owners bet? Can clubhouse people bet? So those are the questions. You know, the devil is going to be in the details of this story. And and look, I am not sitting here trying to say that, oh gosh, you know, you shouldn't be able to bet, to, to bet unless you go to Las Vegas. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that sometimes when you open a floodgate, you know, and I'm not comparing this necessarily to the legalization of marijuana in some states. But you ask the cops in these states that have legalized marijuana, the state of Washington, I've seen stuff, certainly the state of Colorado. And, you know, you see there's more driving under the influence stops, you know, of people who uh, are under the influence of marijuana. And I'm not again, saying that these laws should be rolled back. But I'm saying that in many cases, I wouldn't even call them unintended consequences, but there are details in these stories that we don't know how it's all going to work out. It is a blank canvas for 49 states in America. And I think before we all say, hip, hip, hooray, we can gamble legally on all sports, we better see what all of the consequences are before we celebrate this as a wonderful day in the history of Sporting America. And now my conversation with Jenny Varentis and Judy Batista. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Uh, very happy to be joined by uh, longtime NFL reporter Judy Batista. Uh, of NFL.com, formerly of the New York Times. She's on the phone with us from her home in New York and in studio today, joined by uh, uh, Jenny Varentis of the MMQB, my peer, who is uh, joining us today here in New York as we discuss something that, you know, I uh, go around, obviously, as you guys do, and I see what I consider to be um, something fairly stark. I go to training camps every year. I go to games and I look around press boxes and I look around, uh, the press cores. Uh, that's probably the wrong pronunciation, plural of press core, but, 
of of NFL teams, and it still looks very, very much like the press cores of the teams that I covered in the 80s, which is to say the vast majority white male, um, and certainly the vast majority uh, male. Um, so I, I just... I wanted to just have a discussion about what you guys see when you go out there and about sort of what, if anything, we as a business can do to change the dynamic a little bit. And Judy, I'm going to start with you. Um, first of all, can you can you just start by by telling people how long you have covered pro football and what you see when you are out there these days? Uh, so I started covering pro football in 2000. So this will be my 18th, right? If we do the math, 18th season. Um, I actually uh, notice incremental improvement. Um, you know, uh, certainly I see more women in press boxes and, at, you know, when we're at training camps than you used to. That's not to say there's a lot. Um, Part of what I think I noticed is there's more women on the national level, like Jenny, for example, um, Lindsay Jones at USA Today. Um, I, and I think part of that, which goes deeper into, you know, the issue of like local media and newspapers, is that there are fewer and fewer local newspapers reporters covering teams. I mean, that's just the sort of state of the newspaper business. Um, and as a result, I think you're not seeing um, new blood come in there uh, the way you once did. You know, I mean, I started at the Miami Herald, and I didn't cover pro football there, but I covered college football there. But that's that was my entree into covering uh, sports. And I'm not sure you're getting that sort of new blood into covering major beats like that because... Uh, people are just not going into the newspaper business anymore because newspapers don't have as big a staff. And so I think that's contributing to it. And I think it's why you're seeing when there are gains in the number of women covering pro sports, I think you're more likely to see those gains coming, you know, at national publications or at TV stations, you know, things like that. Um, you know, I actually, I think I see, I certainly see more women in press boxes now than I did in the beginning. I never gave it much thought when I was starting out. I, I, I don't know if I just didn't expect to see women. I knew that I was going um, into a field that was male-dominated, and I think I sort of figured it would be that way for a long time. Jenny, what do you see? What do you feel? And, and just so that people know, how long have you been doing this? I started covering the NFL in 2007, so about 11 years. I think it's so different city to city. You know, Judy and I both covered the Jets uh, at one point in time, and the Jets beat, for whatever reason, has always had a, a lot of women covering the team. And then you go into other cities, and you might see zero, you might see one. Um, so I think it does vary a lot city to city. Um, and I think Judy raises a really good point about, you know, local papers not having the resources and people not you know, having the opportunities to work their way up. I mean, that was certainly my experience that I had to work my way up. And I think a lot of times um, being a woman in sports writing, the thing that I always say is there's a higher burden of proof. You know, you have to prove that you know something, uh, whereas I think a lot of times men are given the benefit of the doubt. So I wasn't going to be hired to cover I would, an NFL I would beats. echo that. 
Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Keep going. (laughs) No, right. Exactly. So I think, you know, a local newspaper where you can prove yourself and work your way up, that was essential to my experience, right? So I started out, you know, doing the party blog for Super Bowl 42 with the Giants and then ultimately was able to... You were working at the Star Ledger in New Jersey. Yeah, that's right. So, but the other thing I think is just people in hiring positions making an impact. And I really, Peter, you have done, you have made such a difference in that area. I remember when, when you first started the MMQB on the plane ride home from our offsite retreat, you told me you wanted to hire a staff with a woman, with a person of color. And I remember thinking, you know, you could take that two ways. No one wants to be hired because of that. But that's not what you were saying. You were saying once you had a position to put together, you were in a position to put together a staff, you wanted to bring in other people that were underrepresented in our business because you believed our staff would be stronger because of it. And I think you really made an impact at Sports Illustrated. And I hope you have made an impact in the business overall, just with that kind of hiring perspective and practice. Well, I'll give you a quick little story about that. Um, and this is something that I applaud Sports Illustrated for because in 2013, when we were going to start this, so I've had this long, uh, look, I love SI. It's been my home for 29 years. It's done a lot more for me than I've done for it. And I absolutely love the place. But the weakness of Sports Illustrated has long been that it has been, uh, in my opinion anyway, very underrepresented uh, with women, um, particularly and also with people of color. So, And here's what I thought, Jenny, and I'm dead serious about this. In my opinion, and I hate to say this, okay, because when I started on the New York Giants beat in 1985, I asked my wife, uh, who is an absolute saint of saints, I said, can I just go and work this training camp by myself? Because I'm going to want to work like 14 hours a day. There's 19 people I'm going to be competing against, and I've got to prove myself. And, you know, quite honestly, one of the reasons why I wanted you and I wanted Clemco particularly uh, who is y- Robert Klemko, who's a young African-American reporter who I had just met uh, the previous playoff season. Uh, one of the reasons why is that I knew that you guys were really hungry. And I knew that you guys really wanted to prove yourselves. And that is the reason why I didn't hire people who I knew. Because it would have been very easy to hire uh, 52-year-old male sports writers who were some of my best friends in the world. Uh, But I just didn't want to do that. And I also knew that over time, I, I just firmly believe this. It happened with Emily Kaplan. She was as hungry as they come. It's happening right now with Kaylin Kaler. It's happening, uh, you know, to me, uh, with women on our staff, I don't know what the inner workings of women and young people in general are, but I found the greatest reward I found is that you're you're so hungry to prove yourselves every day, and that's what this job is. In essence, a sports writer in so many ways is an independent contractor, and you, at the end of the day, you don't have any excuse. You Your work is your resume, you know? And uh, and so that's 
why I feel strongly that young people in particular, and also women, you know, I, I just, I don't mean to be sort of prejudiced like this, but I truly believe that in hiring, especially women, that you're going to come in and you're going to say, hey, look, I, I, ha- I have to prove that I really know football, and I have to prove every day that, uh, that I am, uh, that I'm capable of doing this as well or better than men are, and I'll just say for the, the two people who are on his, uh, who are on this podcast right now, you know, I would assign Judy Batista or Jenny Verentis to any story just because I've seen it. I've seen it for years. Um, and so that's why I think, and again, I don't mean to damn you with faint praise, both of you, but I just firmly believe that if we are indeed the land of opportunity in this country, then let's give people opportunities and let's see what happens. And that's why, uh, I don't know, that's kind of why I did what I did. Judy, I... I I'm curious overall, when you look at the landscape, you think there's anything more that employers can be doing? Is there anything more that colleges can be doing to prepare women uh, for this life and for this job? Well, I mean, let's start with employers. There's no question. I mean, those are the people who can make the biggest difference and the most immediate difference. I was lucky at the Miami Herald, Paul Anger was the sports editor, and he always had women on the sports staff. And then um, I went to Newsday, and they had women on the sports staff. And then Neil Amder hired me at the New York Times, and he had had women on the staff. So those are the biggest change agents and the most immediate change agents um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to pick on the athletic, but I mean, there have been stories already written about the athletic, which is booming and it's great and it's creating a ton of jobs for people in our business. But there, it seems to be there is a deficit so far in um, their hiring practices for minorities and women. I hope that that expands. Now, they have created a business at a time when a lot of experienced, um, talented people are coming onto the market because of the shrinking of the newspaper business. So it's hard to blame them, you know, for picking up those people. It's, it's great for a lot of people. But, you know, I, I hope maybe they reach out a little bit more um, to bring women and minorities into the fold, too. They have an opportunity. They're creating something from scratch. As for what colleges can do, um, Look, I think colleges probably have a big enough burden trying to prepare people to go into a media landscape that none of us can predict what it's going to look like. Uh, you know, I, I, does anybody know what media is going to look like in 10 years, five years? No, we couldn't have predicted what it looks like right now, five years ago. Um, having said that, I would say I would echo what Jenny said before. You have to be real when you're talking to women who are going into this business. There is a higher burden of proof for women in this profession. You have to, have to prove that you know what you're doing. It's unfair. Um, there are certainly men who should have to prove that they know what they're talking about too, but that's just the way it is. You're going into a male-dominated field if you're covering pro sports in the United States, a heavily male-dominated arena. Um, you, you have to prove yourself that's just the way it is, and I and I don't think it. 
um, helps to gloss over that. I think you have to prepare people for the idea that you're going to have to work harder. Um, you're going to get, have to get used to the idea that people are going to get jobs ahead of you because um, people believe that men know sports better than women do. Um, and you have to prove that they're wrong. And you're probably going to have to do that your entire career. Uh, it, that doesn't change. You have to prove it. I mean, I'm sure Jenny gets the same thing I do, but occasionally on Twitter you'll write a story and people will come back at you with like, you know, you don't know football. How could you ever know football? You never played the game. And, I, you know, and then you go through the whole song and dance of, do you really think like the entire press box is populated by former college football players? And, you know, get real. So, but that's a constant thing, right? I mean, I've been in the business now a long time, and it still happens. So, I mean, I assume that this is going to be until the day I retire, I'm going to have to defend me covering football. The last time I played in a football game, <laughs> I was in fifth grade. Yeah. And I bet that's right. The vast majority of people covering uh, football, <laughs> if they played it at any level, the last time they played it was high school, maybe, you know, not, I wouldn't say that, you know, you have a whole lot of I find it really, you know what? I find it really interesting that all these guys at Pro Football Focus now who can tell you uh, the strengths and weaknesses and every snap that Eric Flowers played for the Giants last year, they're all, a lot of these guys are from England and Ireland and they never even heard of football till about 20 years ago and, and certainly never, never played a snap of it. But I, I, I find that part of it. You know, because a lot of times I, I, I've told people that I last played football when I was in elementary school, basically, and they're like their jaws hit the floor. What you you didn't play at least all the way through high school? You didn't, and and it's why is that a prerequisite? You know, to uh, to covering the game, Jenny. What 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 is it like for you to go out and cover the game? Uh, and and feel that some people feel that way. How does that manifest itself? And are there any good stories of people calling you a football numbskull? I think the worst feeling in an interview is when you're asking a question and you can tell that their answer is different because you're a woman. That is the worst part about it. I, I remember when I was um, a younger reporter, I was in the locker room and I was interviewing a running back and there were two injuries on the left side of the offensive line. And so I asked them, him, how does that affect, you know, play selection? Would you run to less to the left side, you know? And he said, you're such a woman when it comes to this. And I had no response. You know, fortunately, I had a, a colleague that was the lead beat writer. And after he left the locker room and he was like, tomorrow, just, you know, give it back to him. I mean, I was 23 probably at the time. And so I did. I went up to him and I said, it's not OK to say something like that, you know, and it, it was fine from there moving forward. But, you know, as a reporter, you're supposed to be in a position of you're asking questions. It's not my job to tell them how much I know. But yet, sometimes you get into situations where you can tell that their answers are being dumbed down. And in, in that situation, you almost have to say something that lets them know that you do know what you're talking about. You know, you have to kind of ask a, a question that 
indicates that you want the deeper insight. You want them to go in depth into whatever football topic they're talking about. And so I find that to be a hard balance. You know, I think there are also certainly situations. I mean, I remember being 22 or 23, going to a league meeting the first time, largely owner, uh, male ownership in the NFL. That's why it's important for there to be role models. I mean, seeing someone like Judy command the respect that she does in those situations I think is important for younger reporters to see because, you know, it, it you, you, you know, you do need reassurance at times that you can crack into an old boys club, right? I, I think it, it, if you don't see it, sometimes you think, oh man, I, I'm never going to find my way here. And that's why I think it's important to have, you know, more women in prominent roles so that women coming up in the business can see it. Um, and then when I was younger, too, I was fortunate that I lived with another female sports writer. I went to Columbia with Katie String. Uh, she's now at The Athletic. Um, and uh, she it was at Newsday at the time. I was at the Star-Ledger. She was covering hockey. I was covering the NFL. And we had each other to trade notes with and to you know understand that our experiences were not specific to who we were or how we were doing our job necessarily. And that, to me, was very helpful and reassuring because it can be very hard to navigate it. You kids can start to think, like, what am I doing wrong? Is it is it related to me and how I do my job? And, and in many cases, it's not. Judy, um, are there uh, – I'll preface this by saying I remember covering the New York Giants in 1985, and the Boston Globe and Vince Doria was the sports editor, really uh, was uh, trying to be groundbreaking uh, and insisting that, you know, women uh, – could go in the locker room after games and it wasn't a case where you could just bring players out to women after the game and Jackie McMullen came to a Giants game at the Meadowlands and I just I felt awful for her because it was almost like she was having to do something she was almost having to be you know Rosa Parks in some ways you know at this at this football game I felt terrible for her. it was very hard for her but she did a great job and and I I think of this sometimes when I think of what it must be like uh especially if you enter a locker room and you're the only woman in there so Judy I'm sure this has happened to you what is it like to be the only woman in a, a locker room of including reporters, media, camera people, whatever, players, coaches, equipment people of maybe a hundred men, maybe 150 men. Uh, honestly, I've never thought about it, uh, which I know is going to sound strange, but um, I, I never, I've been unbelievably fortunate. I think I've Never had what you would think of as a typical, you know, locker room experience. Nobody's ever tried to say you shouldn't be in here. Part of that, I think, is because I was, um, as far as I can remember, I was never the first woman on a particular beat when I covered the Miami Hurricanes. Um, I was not the first woman to have been on that beat. Uh, certainly when I started covering pro football, I was not the first woman on that beat. So I think that probably insulated me a little bit. Um, I, but I still certainly have the experience of going into a locker room where I look around and I'm the only woman. I, I just don't think about it. Like, I, I, it, it doesn't register with me. Um, first of all, locker rooms, as you guys know, are so chaotic and so ridiculous and so cramped, especially when you're covering, you know, pro football, 
there's so many people in there. You've got a limited amount of time. You're focused on like, I got to get over to, uh, you know, listen to Tom Brady. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't notice all of the stuff going on around me. I mean, you're, I'm very focused on like what I need to get and who I'm trying to talk to and whatever story I'm reporting. I don't, I just don't pay attention to who else is in there with me. I mean, usually I focus on when I focus on who else is in there with me, it's my thought is like, my God, there are so many people in this locker room, but not, well, they're all men. Like, I just don't, uh, I'm just not paying attention to that. Judy, have you ever felt either intimidated or harassed in a locker room? Nope. Never. No. That's tremendous. Yeah, uh, Jenny, I think part part of that, if I can say, I've been lucky in a few ways. First of all, I've I've always worked at sort of bigger markets. So I worked at Miami and then in New York. That I think probably insulates because again, I wasn't the first woman on any of those things. And I think probably teams in bigger markets. My assumption is they probably have better media training where they're told don't harass the reporters. Um, and the other thing is. Um, you know, I, I think covering um, when when you work for sort of larger outlets as Jenny and I have and now do is there is you know there's not I'm not going to call it a fear factor but I mean there is more of a you know don't mess with the reporter from Sports Illustrated I think you know I mean um, I certainly I, I have friends and I'm sure Jenny does too who have worked in. Um, smaller markets where there are not as many reporters, where there's certainly not as much media coverage in general, and they are the only woman there, and they have been the first woman on a beat who have had issues, including not just players giving them problems, but like, you know, the, the executives giving them problems about, you know, you shouldn't be in a locker room, maybe we need to change the rules and not have the locker room open, and we'll just bring players out for you, that kind of thing. Um, but I think I've been a little bit insulated from that. Jenny, have you ever felt either intimidated, harassed, or particularly, uh, I don't even want to say preyed upon, but intimidated in the locker room? I have, you know, not in a while, more so when I was younger. I think it was harder to navigate being 22, 23, new to the business, Um And so there were definitely cases then. I think what Judy said is really true. I think when you work for a bigger outlet, um, it's, you know, you're less prone to that. I think the older you are, the more, you know, um, I don't know, respect you've built up through the years. You're not seen as much as as an easy target. I was at a a university class recently um, talking about, you know, women in sports, and there were maybe five women in the class, and they have assignments where they have to go out to – um, cover pro games in the area. And I think three of the five women had a bad experience at the game. And I think that's a sort of a great example because here they are, they don't have a lot of experience. You know, they're not with a big outlet. They're there for, a, you know, for a class uh, for a university. And it was, it, that was hard for me to hear. And they described their experiences and, and feeling like they were dismissed or uncomfortable or someone had said something to them someone assumed one was a player's wife and so that to me was was disheartening to hear um you know because as as much as as while it, it it it's nice that you're you know 
those incidences occur less when you're older. You know, I, I see younger reporters in locker rooms and from smaller outlets. And I sort of remember being in that situation. And that's not always fun. Um, you know, and I think it's true. You know, I, I do notice the makeup uh, for whatever reason. I do notice if there's other women in the locker room. I, I like to see other women, you know, and I agree with Judy. It's usually smaller markets where there's less. And there are definitely cities that you go to where there hasn't been a woman on the beat. And I do feel like the dynamic is different. Jenny, what's your advice when you go talk to colleges, when you go talk to women and if somebody reaches out to you, a young woman in a college saying, can I make it? Should I do this job? I encourage them to do it. I just encourage them to go in with an open mind as well, to know that the burden of proof is higher, to know that you may get overlooked for opportunities, you know, to know that your experience is going to be a little bit different. It doesn't mean you can't have end up in the same place that you won't have a, a fantastic career path. I just think it helps going in to know that some of your experiences are going to be different and it has nothing to do with the fact of how you are doing your job. I mean, you can control certain things, um, you know, the way you respond um, to, you know, put yourself in a more successful situation. But I think... I would have liked to know at 22 that, you know, it was going to be a little different. That's something that I think would have would have helped me. Judy, your your advice to uh, the younger Judy Batista, what do you know now that you <laughs> wish you knew when you were just a pup at The New York Times? Um. Well, I, I wish I, I I think a little bit of what Jenny said, like I I wish I'd realized that I was going to have the career that I was going to have and that it would be okay, and, but that I would still have to, you know, convince people that I knew that that was not going to change. Um, you know, as many years as I've done it now, to a certain degree, I still have to prove to people that I belong there. Um, and, and that's why, you know, like you asked Jenny, like, what do you say to, you know, college kids about this. And that would be my advice. Like go in with your eyes wide open, like do it for sure. If this is what you want to do, do it, but have your eyes wide open. Like it's, it might be tough sometimes. And, um, you know, you, you, you might have stumbles and it might not always be pleasant, but you know what? Like a lot of career paths are not pleasant. I mean, this is not something that's exclusive to sports writing or journalism in general. Like there are plenty of professions where women you know, are still having to prove that they belong there. As, I mean, we've seen that um, certainly over the last six to eight months, uh, women who have very difficult career paths. Um, so I encourage people to do it. But I, I mean, I, I tell them, be real. Like, you have to be better in many cases than the men who are going to be your competition. That's just the way it is. And if you, you know, if you're not ready to handle that, then don't do it because that's the way it's going to be. And as much as I hope it changes, it's not going to change quickly enough that it's going to be different in five years. You know, it's just not because you still have the vast, vast majority of people in decision-making positions are men. Um, and, and while a great number of them are enlightened enough to want to put women in prominent roles, you know, there's, there's still some who, you know, cater only to the old boy network. So uh, just be ready for that. 
The other thing to clarify, just something I said before, too, about what you can control. And I said how you respond to things to get a more successful outcome. And in one sense, I hate saying that how you respond. It shouldn't be on you to make the situation okay. But the reality is there are going to be times when you have a limited window to get your job done. And if you you know, know how to handle, if you're prepared going in for something that you might face, then you have a better chance of, of finishing your goal in this limited time period. Because we all know how this business is. You don't always have unlimited access or limited times to get things done. And I think a lot of times it just helps to have a game plan going in for situations you might face so that you can still complete your job. Do you, the last thing I would ask you both, do you feel in any way like there is a little bit more pressure on you as women because there are so many people uh, who are growing up today and who believe that women can do anything? And so here you are at pretty high levels of the media and there's probably an eight-year-old girl in Destin, Florida, who loves football and whose mother says, uh, here, uh, Desiree, <laughs> you know, uh, why don't you read uh, Jenny Varentis at the MMQB and it's Sports Illustrated. And, and here's a story by Judy Batista of NFL.com about Tom Brady. So I would ask you, I'll start with you, Judy, you feel some pressure that, that, you know, you almost have to be more of a role model than many of your male counterparts? Uh, well, until you just said that, Peter, I've never thought of it that way. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> just one more thing to think about now. Um, I've never thought of it that way, but I, I think that sort of all goes back to what we've said a few times, which is like you have to do better, right? I mean, you just have to be better. And, um, uh, you know, I hope there are like eight-year-old Desirees and Dustin, you know, who are looking at it and thinking you can, you know, you can do anything because you can. Um, sort of, I always marvel at my parents who somehow instilled that in me without ever saying it out loud, like that you can do anything. Somehow they conveyed that message to me. And now that I'm raising a daughter myself, like I sort of wonder, how did they do that? Um, but, you know, you just have to do better. And again, I would, I would emphasize this is not exclusive to sports journalism. Like, this is the way of the world in a lot of professions. So, you know, deal with it. You know, hopefully it changes in their lifetimes, um, but it's not going to change quickly enough that they will be unaffected by it. So figure out a way to deal with it. Jenny. Yeah, I never, I never thought about it in that sense either until you mentioned it, Peter. But um, th I think the one thing that um, I, I do so sometimes think about is, is certain situations. Not every time I have a byline, oh, this better be good in, in case someone reads it. But there are si certain situations, I think, in which you know that the way you respond um, matters and, you know, the words you choose and how you go about something um, really matters. So I do think about it in those situations. Um, perhaps maybe you're under more scrutiny. Um, perhaps maybe you think people are looking to see how you would respond. In those situations, I think um, it does come to mind. Um, and what Judy said one time when I was passed over for an opportunity 
um, in, in a previous job, I remember my mother saying, women didn't burn their bras in the 70s for my daughter to be discriminated against in the 2000s. And I just thought that was wonderful because it was true. But it's, you know, it's change is slow, you know. And uh, I think that's a great point by Judy that, you know, it's not going to change quickly enough to be unaffected. That's a really, um, that's a uh, right on way to say it. <laughs> Judy Batista of NFL.com, uh, Jenny Varentis of the MMQB, thanks so much for joining me and for uh, sharing your stories about, uh, I don't know, I find it a very interesting topic. Thanks for having me, Peter. Yeah, same. Thank you, Peter. This is the MMQB Podcast. This time of year brings us two things, graduations and Father's Day, and the gifts that go along with them. So before you buy dad another tie or that grad a balloon that'll probably just float away, ask yourself this, does my dad like wings? Does he like sports? Or better yet, does he like both? If the answer is yes, then get them a Buffalo Wild Wings gift card. Right now, if you purchase $30 worth or more in-store or online, they'll give you a $5 bonus to keep for yourself. That's a gift that gives back. And how generous of you. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Terms and conditions apply. And now my conversation with Jonathan Jones. Back on the MMQB podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Jonathan Jones of the MMQB and Sports Illustrated. Uh, Jonathan, for those of you who don't know, is based in Charlotte. Uh, and he, before he came to us, he was a beat writer covering Carolina Panthers uh, for the Charlotte Observer. Uh, and David Tepper is the uh, owner-in-waiting, the heir to the ownership of Jerry Richardson of the Carolina Panthers. And so I thought we would have Jonathan on to talk a little bit about uh, David Tepper and about the state of the Panthers. And Jonathan, I'll start by asking you that So that my biggest question question about all of this was whoever bought this team were they going to keep them in charlotte and now apparently word comes down today uh we record this on tuesday that part of tepper's agreement was that this team will stay in charlotte is that your understanding and if so what does it mean it is my understanding and and um first of all thanks for having me on and you know it's my understanding that the team will stay in charlotte it's also my understanding that it's the only thing that makes sense, right? Um, you know, obviously some team is threatening to maybe move out to London at some point, and it's really only the Jacksonville Jaguars. You have the places like Los Angeles uh, and Las Vegas that are already, uh, you know, already have an NFL team now. We're about to have an NFL team. And then when you consider the Carolina Panthers, if you put North and South Carolina together, you have the fifth most populous state in America. When you look at if the Panthers were to leave Charlotte, you have a, a gigantic gap here in the, in the southeast mid-Atlantic region where uh, from northern Virginia to Atlanta, there is no team where football is certainly still king in this area. Uh, it would not make a great deal of sense to leave here. And then, of course, they have something like 150 consecutive sellouts. You have a winning franchise. You've built something here. So it would not make a great deal of sense to move the team now. Will uh, the next owner, David Tepper, do what a lot of NFL owners do and try to, like what Jerry Richardson did, and shake down the city for seventy, a hundred million dollars uh, to have some, you know, X-year tether to keep the team in Charlotte, but to either uh, renovate uh, the the stadium as Richardson did or ask for more money 
uh, to help fund a new stadium, potentially one with a dome, potentially one where the new owner can own the parking, which is a huge uh, uh, profitable uh, enterprise for anyone who owns a stadium. The Panthers do not have that. I can absolutely see that happening in the future, but I, I 100% believe, uh, as Tepper uh, and his people and his camp has said, that the team will stay in Charlotte. Do you do you think that uh, that it's going to change the way the team operates at all? Well, I think you know, with this uh, NFL investigation, and you know, obviously. Uh, Sports Illustrated had uh, the explosive story in December and then the follow-up a few weeks ago uh, where one of the accusers called the NFL investigation a farce. I would have to think that uh, the the investigation will have to prompt some type of change within the organization. I know the Panthers have said that they have uh, made some amendments to the workplace environment there. Uh, you would have to think that Tepper is going to be aware of that. He did not become uh, he did not become worth a hundred billion dollars because he's a foolish man. Uh, and so, uh, I think that to a point, there is going to remain you know some status quo. He's going to keep the people you know in the ticket office, for example, right? Uh, but he's also going to be keenly aware uh, of uh, of who all is at the top, what their involvement was, and any potential. Uh, wrongdoing and in this investigation he's going I, b- I would believe to make some changes but again he's not a foolish guy he knows that he can't come in here and blow up the organization on day one he has to keep some infrastructure in place uh, just like anyone would with such a big organization it sounds like uh, from what I read uh, from Adam Schefter and, and Seth Wickersham uh, who wrote about uh, this at ESPN on Tuesday that uh, he really wants to bring a little piece of the Pittsburgh Steelers as far as the, uh, you know, sort of long-term security and not knee-jerk reactions to things uh, to Carolina. But, I, you know, I have to say, Carolina is not – Carolina has given their coaches – a pretty long rope, right? With you know, with right. with John Fox and and now with with Ron Rivera, who's one of the longest tenured coaches in the league. What what if anything do you think that means? Well, I, I can tell you that Jerry Richardson um, modeled his franchise after the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was a big fan uh, of of Dan Rooney, and when you look at uh, their even their preseason schedule, I think for the past you know ten, twelve, fourteen years, the last preseason game that's played uh, is between those two teams uh, on, on a Thursday of week four in the preseason. So they have long been uh, friendly with one another. Jerry Richardson has looked to the Pittsburgh Steelers as a, as a model of a franchise that he wants his franchise uh, to, to be in the image of. Uh, but I'll tell you this, David Tepper is not a Rooney, right? He, he was around the Steelers. He grew up in Pittsburgh. He grew up middle class. But, uh, you know, when you start reading up on David Tepper, um, you know, he was a guy who has a hot and cold temper with some of his employees. One uh, former employee told New York Magazine back in 2009 that he's a little Jekyll and Hyde. I've had some stuff thrown at me. Uh, you know, you can listen to David Tepper and you, you can kind of hear the temper in his voice. Um, and, you know, the other thing is he's a hedge fund billionaire. He's a guy that when he calls into CNBC, people listen. He can really help control the market. And one of my favorite stories about David Tepper when he decided to move from New Jersey down to Florida, where, of course, we all know they do not have state income tax, uh, the state of New Jersey missed out on about $150 million in taxes per year 
Um, and so just how much power this guy has, uh, he knows it and he likes to wield it. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear things like that because I've always felt like when a new owner comes into a team, there's a time of proving it doesn't matter how you've made your money. You're going to be judged strictly, uh, not on how much money you have, but on how you do in that environment. And it didn't take long when Jimmy Haslam went from, uh, you know, a member of Steeler ownership to own the Cleveland Browns. It didn't take long for the fan base and for a lot of people to feel that, uh, you know, he didn't know what he was doing. Um, and clearly it doesn't look like so far that he's known what he's doing because he's had a very uh, knee-jerk uh, attitude about hiring and firing people. Um, that uh, and, and I give him credit uh, for keeping his coach this year, but his, his first few years in ownership, he had that same attitude. Hey, I want to create something like the Steelers. He just didn't act like that. So I guess I would say, you know, I wonder... What's your gut feeling? Will 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 Tepper be able to sort of, uh, you know, have the patience if need be with this franchise? I'll tell you, his his resume and his biography is one of a fast riser. When he got out of school, uh, I think he he meddled around in Boston for a little bit. He went to Goldman Sachs and really rose up the ranks at Goldman Sachs very quickly. He got passed over uh, twice for partnership there when he thought that he deserved it. And that's when he went off and created his own firm, Appaloosa Management, which uh, at one point in the 90s was worth a couple dozen million dollars. And then uh, what he did was, how he made a lot of his money was, he decided that the, the banks are, are going to fail, but he bet that the government was going to bail them out. Uh, and of course the government did. And that's where he made a huge chunk of his money. And so he went from, I think, something like $57 million to now, of course, he's worth $11 billion uh, in less than two decades. He has always been a fast riser. He has always kind of gotten what he wanted. Uh, and, and I'll tell you one other story about a guy who gets what he wants. The ex-wife of the man who passed over him uh, for the Goldman Sachs partnership, he went out to the Hamptons and bought that house for $50 million. And that wasn't enough for David Tepper. He then demolished that house and then built a better house in that spot. And, you know, as he said, it might be that there's just a little justice in this world. That's totally bizarre. That seems like a colossal waste of money to me. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, look, uh, I guess it's um, when you have a jillion dollars, uh, spending $50 million to do something like that is not so idiotic. But I, I don't know, people with money sometimes uh, uh, confuse me. Um, while I've got you on the phone, um, I'll ask you this question about these Carolina Panthers. I wonder, when you look at this team right now, is this a team that's poised to return to the highest level of the playoffs, or uh, are, do they have enough holes that it's going to be the Saints and the Falcons, and then they're chasing them. Right now on paper, I think that you have to believe the Saints and Falcons are better teams. Uh, the, the Carolina Panthers did not get better uh, by losing Andrew Norwell, uh, the offensive guard. 
they did not get better by losing Starla Kulay, the guy, the the three hundred pound behemoth who has been uh, taking on double teams for the be- for the better part of the past four years. Uh, their secondary, uh, you know, they still have holes certainly at safety, uh, you know, and at the other corner position. Uh, I think their wide receiving group got better uh, with Torrey Smith and free agency, and then of course DJ Moore, their first round pick. Uh, but you know, when they rose up uh, in 2015 with that 15 and one season, which was you know obviously fantastic, the, the the Rams and the Eagles and the Falcons and Saints. I mean, this is a really good NFC, and I think we were starting to see the beginnings of a very good NFC. Uh, in 2015, and now all of it is really kind of coming to fruition. Uh, and so you have an NFC South that you know three playoff teams went, uh, three teams went to the playoffs last year. Three teams can go again, uh, and then of course uh, the Rams and, and the Eagles, as we've all said. I think a lot of people are penciling them in for the NFC Championship game. So the the Panthers are going to have a tough time, one because of competition, but then also, you know, when you're good, a lot of people take parts from you, uh, and we've seen that with. Their past two defensive coordinators, Sean McDermott and Steve Wilkes, they have a new offensive coordinator. No one really knows what North Turner's going to do with a guy like Cam Newton in the NFL in 2018. A lot of unknowns, but then also a lot of holes. So, uh, like I said, I think right now on paper, they're squarely number three in the NFC South. And uh, are you convinced, or do you still have questions, is the, uh, is the new offensive philosophy around Cam Newton going to make him a better player, going to do anything to return him to MVP form? You know, last year they spent all offseason saying that they were going to dial back Cam Newton, right? That's all that they were telling me and telling us, the, the media. And then, of course, uh, he, he rushes for just about the same amount that he had in his previous six seasons. And so what North Turner, you know, North Turner has never had a guy like Cam Newton. And so we can look back at, at what he's done with the Vikings and the Cowboys and blah, blah, blah. The fact is he's never coached in an NFL like the NFL is today. And he's never had a quarterback like Cam Newton in any type of NFL yesterday or today. And so because of that, it really is impossible to say, uh, you know, in, in mid-May what this offense is going to look like. Uh, but I understand if a lot of fans have some questions about it, considering North didn't have the best track record. Uh, when he finished up uh, his last go-round in the NFL. You know, I what I think would be really interesting watching Cam Newton right now going forward is that this is a pretty major change. You're going from a – and look, I'm not saying that, uh, you, you know, Norv Turner is a, is a very pleasant, uh, mostly mild-mannered guy, uh, as Mike Shula was, you know, his former offensive coordinator. But – I know Nor very, very well, and he is going to be exacting. And I always got a sense in Carolina that you didn't necessarily, you know, there wasn't the emphasis, you better run this route exactly 13 yards, uh, not 12 and a half. And so I think that'll be interesting, you know, with Norv sort of, in my opinion anyway, kind of drawing a line in the sand about what is required and uh, seeing if this Carolina offense will adhere to that. I don't disagree, and a lot of it is, is culture-based. And, you know, Cam has long kind of done whatever Cam wants to do, especially at, in that organization uh, in a lot of ways. And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see during their offseason program how well he and Norv uh, get along and, and how much respect uh, you know, Cam gives to him how much respect Norv, uh, you know, demands early on and, and how well they work together because 
you know, Cam and Mike Shula worked together very well, uh, you know, on, on Monday through Saturday. But then on Sunday, sometimes it just didn't seem to click uh, for the two of them. And so, uh, like you mentioned, Norv is, is obviously very exacting. Cam has kind of marched the beat of his own drum in a number of ways throughout his career and throughout his life. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting marriage here in Carolina. Jonathan Jones, thanks so much for summing that up and for uh, sort of previewing the ownership of David Tepper. And I, I, what I take away from this is it just might be a tad tempestuous. <laughs> just a little bit, Peter. Thanks I hope me so. On. Hey, listen, all the best to you, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks a lot, Peter. Appreciate it. Thanks to my guests, Judy Batista, Jenny Varentis, and Jonathan Jones. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Larry Fitzgerald, and Chris Mortensen. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Buffalo Wild Wings. Please support Buffalo Wild Wings the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next time.